Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Ruler is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Ruler interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at ruler.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering, I'm the editor of Ruler, and this is Ruler Conversations. So we're two weeks into the Tour de France. It's the morning of the second rest day. And I'm catching up with James Start, who has been covering the Tour de France since the Grand Départ in Bilbao. Everyone remember that? So James has been on a race moto the last couple of stages. And I have to say, James, when I saw Pogacar's attack on the Juplan get blocked by a moto, my heart was in my mouth. And I was worried it was going to be you. And I was getting ready to pretend I didn't know you. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for the solidarity. I know where I stand now. Uh, well, it wasn't me, so we can still be friends, huh? What can I say? We can indeed, and Rulo remains blameless, yeah. and no threat of our press pass being removed for, for one day at the Tour de France, thankfully. Uh, but we'll discuss this later, James, because it's an interesting issue, and I know it's one that you're particularly expert on. But we do have a two-part podcast for everyone today. Uh, James and I are going to talk about the Tour de France, obviously, but we've also got a tangentially related interview with James Witts. You'll know James, he's a regular contributor to Ruler. He specialises in sports science, and he decided it would be a good idea to ride the Etape du Tour last year and try to put into practice some of the things he's learned from writing about elite sports science. And he wanted to try and see if what works for a finely honed athlete at the peak of human performance, also works for a regular Devonian guy who likes real ale. So we sat outside a pub in Bristol recently, where I confirmed James does indeed like real ale, but also we talked about his experiences. I hesitate to use the word exploit. Uh, It's a great book uh, called Riding with the Rocket Men. Very, very funny and also very, very educational. Uh, That's coming later. But first, James, start. Where are you and how are you? Uh, uh, I'm not quite sure where I'm at to be honest, although I know I'm somewhere around the Alps. I'm about 45 minutes from Saint-Gervais in the direction of Geneva. Let's put it there. And how are you? How am I? I'm not sure I can answer that. I'm here. I am present and accounted for. <laughs> you, you must be frazzled by now. I mean, the tour's a grueling operation for everyone and you know, following the race is, is no different. Obviously, you're not expending the same watts as the riders, but the logistics are complex as hell, aren't they? They just get harder and harder. It's like crisis management 101 at every turn. You know, you're trying to get from one place to the next, and then you're trying to see the race, anticipate the race, reflect on the race, and write or photograph the race in a creative manner. And it does take its toll. It's physically exhausting and mentally exhausting. And yet we get a front row seat to one of the great events of the year. Friends of mine who ask how my holiday in France is going, just get a look through narrowed eyes from me. But 
Let's talk about the race, James. You've been confidently predicting Pogacar is going to win the Tour for some weeks now. Um, how is that looking for you? I think on paper is the better rider by just uh, such a small margin. But he's had two opportunities here to make a dent in the jersey and he wasn't able to do it. One, because, you know, for sure, because of the motorcycle. Would he have gotten away? We don't know. But, you know, he lost bonus seconds instead of gaining, what, three or four bonus seconds on top of that climb. He lost it. And so instead of being maybe three seconds down going into yesterday's stage, he was 10 seconds down. And this race, you know, as we're sitting here today, this race could be the all-time closest race, less than the eight seconds between Greg LeMond and Laurent Fignon back in 1989. That could all change tomorrow. That could all change on the Col de la Luz on Wednesday. And it's really hard to say who's going to have the upper hand there. It's a really close race. I'm not teaching anybody anything here, but it's the longer I'm in it, the harder it is to tell. Yeah. I mean, you often see over Grand Tours, well, you, you see many things over Grand Tours and you can prove just about anything, but the recent trend, well, maybe the last 15 years in the Tour de France, quite often we talked about that early hammer blow that riders get in. Riders like Armstrong, you know, with his asterisks, Wiggins, Froome, Nibali, many, many Tour de France winners have struck that early hammer blow. And then they level off with the other riders, don't they? There tends to be less margin between them by the end of the race. And if that's the case here, then Essentially, they seem to have fought each other to a standstill, uh, Pogacar and Vingegaard, don't they? Because, as you said, neither can currently get a single second on the other. And, you know, it's great for the race. It's been an amazing race. It is going to be a race for the ages. It's going down as one of the all-time greats. You know, before the race started, the tour started this year, we, we talked about our favourite tours in the past. You know, 89 was obviously a great one. And I mentioned that 2011, the uh, Thomas Vokler and then, and then the Cadell Evans race was just tremendous because it was so close and it was there was you never quite knew what was happening these were all epic battles and you never knew until very close to the end who was going to pull it out and you're not going to know until saturday i think who's going to pull this one out and as we also talked about recently you know, we don't decide whether it's a great tour de france until after the race and then you know even in the weeks and months after the race you can you can digest the result see the race with a bit more distance but from my point of view this is the tour that has so far excited me more than any since 1989, just because of the closeness. The last few days, uh, we're seeing less of the ding-dong battle that Fignon and Le Monde had. You know, each was gaining 20, 30 seconds a time, and they were alternating good and bad days. Much tighter and more tense and, in a way, more absorbing between Pogacar and Vingegaard. But it's it's so close, I cannot say who I think will win because, like I say, we've got three very, very hard stages and very important stages to come. How's the atmosphere on the Tour? There must be a sense of building excitement in the race. The Tour de France is a bubble and everything that happens in that bubble is magnified and you feel it more intensely. So how's the atmosphere in the race about, about this close battle? I think this race is an exception to the rule. I think this is a race where we know already it's going to be one for the ages just because of everything that's happened. At this point, if one of them does finally do that knockout punch, it's still been such a great race just to get to this point. And everybody I talked to in that bubble is saying, wow, this has been an amazing race. The parkour is amazing. But then you can have an amazing parkour. You can have an amazing race route. But then you have to have the actors to step up on that stage and play the leading roles. And we've had two stellar 
leading players here. And they have put in right up to this point, just one of the great performances I've ever seen. And that seems to be the word here at the tour. I agree with that, actually. At the Giro d'Italia this year, that battle between Roglic and Garrett Thomas was very close, but it was very, quite cool. It felt like both were trying not to lose the Giro for most of it. And it there wasn't that sense of a, you know, either going out to win it until that very end when Roglic very well did. Uh, this time, Pogacar's gone looking for it. And that reflects the, I think, the worldviews, personalities and riding styles of the two protagonists, because the fact that they're so different... Vingegaard's very icy, very cool, very defensive in his racing style, whereas Pogacar is mercurial, aggressive, extroverted. And I think that also raises the battle between the two. I can't say enough about both of them. They both just put it on the line uh, in different ways, but they both do it without hesitation. And they're not the only ones. Matthew Vanderpool's been going out in the breaks uh, every day trying to get something. Uh, Van Aert had his chance yesterday. And this generation of riders, they just lay it down. And they're both doing it. Um, Pogachar does it in, yeah, like you said, more mercurial. He'll go on these blitzing attacks. But Vingegaard takes that whole team and just throws the gauntlet down from kilometer zero, putting the team at risk, putting him at risk, and he's not afraid to do it. And he's going for these sprints too. I mean, they're going for it at the top of these climbs and seeing if they can claw back three seconds here, two seconds there. And nobody's giving an inch. And they've both just thrown in the kitchen sink here. I mean, it's just, it's a massive battle. The funny thing is, normally I'm, I'm not a huge fan of bonus seconds in Grand Tours, though, you know, it is part of the race. Everyone knows the rules. Um, when when you get a, a race with bonus seconds, such as Vuelta a couple of times in recent years, where the best rider is also winning the bonus seconds, like it's been Roglic. It makes makes it very hard for anyone to make a dent in that. Why I think it, it's worked particularly in this tour, however, is that you know Vingegaard does have that lead. Pogacar does have the assets to chip away using bonus seconds. And you know, the bonus seconds are actually really magnified in their importance in the way that I've I've not seen in the Tour de France for many years. That could be the difference between the two. Well, absolutely. I talked to Thierry Gouvenou, who um, is the race director here and works with Christian Prudhomme to come up with a race course every year. And uh, we did a feature on this early in the race uh, on Rouleur. And one of the, his big contributions, he's very proud of it, is using those bonus seconds and also where he puts that final climb of the day, finding climbs in any part of the country and deciding, okay, is this one I'm going to go at the end of the stage, which could hand the race over to the punchers or give the GC guys a chance, or he's going to put it earlier or midway through the stage so that the, the sprinters can potentially regroup and come for a sprint. I'm not talking about like the huge mountain stages. I'm just talking about every stage or climb. The final climb has bonus seconds. That's been part of his formula in recent years to give the potential for what we're seeing this year to explode that sort of monotony when one team dominates too much. And it's working. Will it work next year? We don't know, but it sort of is working this year. It's, it's sort of like back in 1989 with that final time trial in the Champs-Élysées. It was brilliant. It was like, oh my God, why don't we do this every year? Well, because a lot of years, you know, the race could be already wrapped up and it doesn't really matter. And you're not going to get the same sort of thing. That year turned out to be the perfect spot on year for that to happen. And this is a year where these bonus seconds are getting magnified, are playing such a role. I think it's exciting. 
I've been getting really into the bonus seconds maths, actually, James. The interesting thing is you, you can apply game theory to this because the bonus seconds at stage finishes are 10, 6 and 4 for first, second and third. And the little nuance about that, which normally no one would care about, is that when first beats second, there's a four second difference. And then if when second beats third, there's a two second difference. And from third to fourth, there's a four second difference again. So there is an advantage to finishing third on the stage for Pogacar ahead of finishing second, assuming that Fingergaard's right behind him, which is crazy, really, because there should be increasing rewards for the higher up you get. So there was that situation in Morzine of the Plan where there was Pogacar's teammate, Adam Yates, Pogacar and Vingegaard going into Morzine. Carlos Rodriguez had the stage wrapped up, so he was going to get the 10 seconds. If Pogacar had had the presence of mind or anyone in the team car had had the presence of mind, which is easy to say in retrospect because I didn't really think of this at the time, they should have sent Adam Yates ahead to get the second place, six seconds, and then Pogacar outsprints Vingegaard for four because the difference there was that if Pogacar had outsprinted Vingegaard for third, he would have gained an extra two seconds. Maybe overthinking it, James, but then again, in a tour where the margin is currently 10 seconds after two weeks, maybe I'm not, but that's how important the bonus seconds are this year. Well, you mentioned this in one of your stories, uh, and I thought it was brilliant analysis, actually, and it would have been really interesting. Although, you know, I, just, I think that Pogachar was a bit shook up with the motorcycle incident that day. Vingegaard, I don't think on paper, would have won that, that sprint at the top of the mountain. He looked to me a little bit confused and I think maybe forgot that there was actually bonus seconds there. I don't know what happened, but I don't think they were as lucid as they, they could be there because there was just, there had been so much chaos. I mean, you know, there was that mass crash in the beginning. Let's not forget. I mean, that, that was a chaotic day on the roads and the fans are so incredibly dense as well. I mean, it's, it's constant chaos. So I will forgive them for not getting their maths right in the final kilometer. <laughs> Yeah, so easy for me sitting on the comfort of my sofa uh, thinking about numbers. I was say, let's zoom out a bit. The middle week of the, the tour, James, there's been a real variety of stages and methodology in winning the stages. We had uh, Peo Bilbao winning in Iswar from a small group. And that was a real interesting day, really lumpy day, very hot day, and came down to a really political, tactical situation at the end with Bilbao winning, but not an easy one to engineer. Um, enjoyed that one. We had Jasper Philipson winning a bunch sprint, regular bunch sprint in Moulin. Probably the most normal, quiet, average stage of the tour, except for me, because I used to live in Moulin and I, I love the town dearly. Jon Izegir won on his own in Belleville. By, he won from that break in a different way than Bilbao won his stage in Iswa. He went solo from a long way out and just you know, rode alone to the line. Uh, we had Michal Kwiatkowski, one of the Grand Colombier, which was the beginning of Ineos rescuing their Tour de France, because up to that stage, they had nothing, absolutely nothing from this tour. And from that stage, and the next one where Carlos Rodriguez won in Morsine, they suddenly had two stage wins. They're up there in the team classification, and Rodriguez is hanging around third overall. And then finally, yesterday, we had Wilt Poles winning in Saint-Gervais from a long, long break. Best climber in that break, engineered it well. And then in amongst all that, we've had the GC battle. So I've really enjoyed this second week. It's been an amazing week, as was the first. And, you know, 
you just gave us a whole lot of break situations. I, I didn't really realize there was so many breaks that actually made it because the GC guys have been just driving it and keeping it together on some stages where we expected breaks to go away. Every one of those guys who won those breaks, anybody who made those breaks is flying because to get in most of those breaks, it was like a two-hour battle. I mean, it was just nonstop attacking until a break could finally form that got away. I mean, it's just been, it has been a brutal couple of weeks of racing. To make those breaks, you got to be really good. Yeah, I think it was the Bellevue stage. I counted, I get a bit nerdy at the start of stages, James, and sometimes on those punchy days, I, I count how many attacks there have been for the break to go away. And I only count attacks off the front, like counters and stuff, it gets a bit complicated, but I made it 50. 50 attempts before the break actually went, which is just crazy, crazy hard. And I don't know how riders judge that this is the right move. I think it's a matter of luck and circumstance as much as any, as much as the legs, but that's part of the entertainment of the tour. So overall, James, I mean, obviously UAE, Jumbo having great tours and one of those two teams and one of their leaders is going to win it. Who else is looking happy and who else is looking glum from your view on the ground? Sudal, Quickstep, has not been having a good race. Um, you know, they lost their key sprinter, Jakobsen, and he got caught up in that, I think it was a stage three or four crash. And, you know, it's just been battered and bruised and was just doing everything he could to finish every stage, not having a good one. Lotto, Destiny also lost to Caleb. So they've been suffering tons. But then you have these other teams like De Kooning and with Philipson and Vanderpool just putting on, you know, I, I look forward to the sprint stages right now because they've been so exciting. And okay, yeah, he's he's the best right now. He's clearly the fastest, but the way they turn it around, the lead out by Vanderpool and then Phillips in closing has just been really, really exciting. And in terms of teams that are still struggling to find their place, uh, Groupama also. Goudou is was hoping for the podium and he's struggling to stay in the top 10. He's not having a great tour and it's compromised the team's ability to express itself as well as um, we'd like. Movistar has struggled since they lost Mas. They've lost two riders now. I mean, it's a brutal race. And, you know, there are three teams that are just shining. There is UAE and Jumbo uh, on the GC thing. And then obviously the Koenig with the Philipson. And then there's the rest. I think Ineos has done tremendously to, to come back, bounce back and get into this race and being on the podium with a young up-and-coming rider is very exciting. Seeing Kiatowski win again is, is, is always tremendous. He's, you know, such a great pro and such an experienced pro. But there's a lot of teams that, you know, are really struggling to, even to exist in this race. Yeah, time's running out as well. And you often find, you know, you don't learn much in the third week that you haven't found out already in the first two. But let's talk motos, James. There was the incident at the top of the Col de Juplan where Vingegaard had chased down Pogacar. Pogacar launched an attack with maybe 500 to go to the top, but was balked by the motos, which in turn had been balked by the crowds, and it took the wind out of its sails. You could see it, and there was a lot of criticism. The photographer and his driver were off the race for a day. I think it was Bernard Papon from L'Equipe. And I have to point out, he did take one of my favourite photos of the entire tour so far. Just afterwards, which was Vingegaard sprinting for the top and Pogacar trying to close him down, which the expressions on their faces were, yeah, you can't make up that kind of expression. But what's your perspective on this? You are more of an expert on this than me or most of the listeners of Relo Conversations. I was actually putting pen to paper before a podcast trying to 
break it down and show readers what happens, what, what we're out there doing in the motos and how it works. Bernard Papon is, is, a, is a friend of mine, and he is a master of doing what he did there, shooting right there at that moment, and his driver is one of the best. Um, and the, the French television moto driver and cameraman are some of the best, but they got caught. I think they both underestimated just how fast Fingergaard, uh, Pogacar can attack, and were just too close. Obviously, the crowds were so dense. So there's twice as many photo motos in the Tour de France as in any any other race, okay? And most of the day, it works this way. We're all, like, say we're, getting, we're going into a climb, uh, like the Jules Plan, and we all want to be photographing, get that shot of Pogacar and Vingegaard, you know, lined up against each other. And we are all stacked up in a single file line ahead of the race on the right-hand side of the road. The Tour has two moto regulators they call them and their job is to basically create a sense of order so that we're not all trying to drop back and shoot the same time so we're all lined up against the head regulator and when he gives you permission the last moto in line drops down to the first regulator who then is directing a group of maybe three of us so one moto is allowed to finally drop down next to the tv cameras and shoot and then there's two others that are waiting and they're slowly getting in position. And when that moto comes up, the next closest in line drops down. And you get about 30 seconds to shoot and then you got to go all the way back up the top of the line. That whole process will take you easily two to three kilometers to get 30 seconds to shoot. It creates a sense of order. It can be frustrating because you don't get, you see a shot coming. You see, you, I mean, how many times have I come up my turn comes up and we, we go into a turn and come back and the light is like not what it was. It was like perfect. And all of a sudden it's totally backlit and blown out. This just happens all the time. But you just have to accept what it is because this is the tour and everybody gets their turn. And it works more or less. It's been working very well. That day, actually, I thought it was working tremendously. I even said, you know, despite the, I mean, these crowds were intense and despite the crowds, we were all able to work. Now, that said... I anticipated that it was going to get really complicated close to the top. And I wanted to have the time to get off my bike and try to find a shot and set it up and just go for getting one shot. The other thing that's important to understand here is that when you get to into the densest crowds, once you start to have attacks, they instantly put into place or very often put into place what they call the pool. And the pool photographer, there's one at the back and there's one at the front. And Papon is the pool photographer at the front. Any picture he takes during that point in time where a pool has been called, he must share with everybody. His job at that point is to provide images for everybody that's on a moto so they can distribute it with their agencies around the world. And it's obviously in the tour's interest to get as many pictures distributed around the world. The idea of putting in place that pool is that you eliminate that whole section of photographers trying to wait their turn and getting impatient or whatever. You just take 10 motos out of the race, put them anywhere but close to the race. And you just have one guy focusing on getting those images. That's where we were at. We are at the most lockdown situation in, in the race. We had the television camera whose job is to, dif you know, is to diffuse images around the world and the one single moto left in the race who has to share his images with everybody. So it was at the moment where the rules were the strictest and there was the least amount of room for error and yet error happened. Why? You know, you never quite know. I wasn't inside, but the crowds were so, this, the crowds this year have been so dense. And on Jules Plan, they were as thick as I'd ever seen. I came around a corner 
Now I'm five feet, I'm five k from the bottom. It was almost my turn. I was just in front of that regulator, that regulator who's going to tell me now it's your turn. We come around a hairpin, and a dad steps out with a kid, holding his hand right in front of the regulator's moto. I mean, the guy, I, the, there was not an accident right there. Was amazing. Just yesterday, I was miles ahead. They were trying to get ahead of the race. I was driving with my motor driver, and a police gendarme, and we were. Wide open road. All of a sudden, a teenager rolls out on his mountain bike, just not even thinking. These are the accidents waiting to happen every moment that we're constantly avoiding. So Papon is in the middle of one of the densest crowds we've ever seen. If he gets too far ahead of that race, they're going to jump in and he's not going to have a picture. I'm sure that's what both of them were thinking, the television camera and him. So they're trying to maintain an option. And if my memory serves me, it was just before they had some ropes set up that held the fans back. So I'm saying they're about 600 meters because those ropes started at 500 meters. So it was at the last most dense part of the race where Pogachar attacked and where those guys got caught out. It's an accident. It's their fault. But it's what we would call a fait de course. You know, it's one of those things. You see these things happen every once in a while and you go, why don't they happen more often? The crowd accidents, kids stepping out, bikes rolling out. It's amazing there's not more accidents. Considering the amount of risk and the potential for disaster, these things happen pretty rarely. The paradox is, of course, that the sport loves those images. There's nothing better, more intense, that expresses the beauty of cycling more than those pictures of crowds in on the riders in the mountains. That is the essence that is what we use to market the sport. That is what the sport uses to market the sport. Um, at the same time, that line between the outside world and the cycling world is is a really blurred one, isn't it? So is there a solution to this, James? Is there a better way of doing it so that instances like that which happened on the Jus Plan don't happen more often? Or is it a case of accepting the rarity of that in exchange for the intensity of that fan experience. I don't think there's a solution. I mean, what are your solutions? Uh, ban the fans? We already saw that happening in COVID. That didn't go over very well. I mean, the fact that the fans couldn't go up to Puy Dome. I mean, even Pogachar told me it when we sat down for our interview with the magazine in, in April, because Puy Dome is going to be special. But the fact that there's not going to be any fans, it's like there's going to be something missing. A lot of riders feed off these fans as well. And yes, that hysteria, when you can capture it in a camera or on film, on television, is, is what gives the, the tour its majesty. And, you know, the second solution, more barriers. But then you got, you got barriers. And then it's just like having no fans. I'm sorry. It's the same thing. Actually, you know, they have just little ropes. And then, you know, gendarmes placed along the roads. And that, as soon as they got into the ropes, it was a different ball game. So that wasn't bad. I think you have to... Take every precaution for it not to happen. Uh, the motos need to be constantly aware. And we're constantly being reprimanded. We're constantly being uh, reminded of, you know, this, that, potential risks. I mean, it's all the time. And I think that generally, you know, we don't see a lot of these things happening, especially in a race like the Tour de France. So generally, you know, I think they get pretty high marks on that. And also, I mean, look at the two riders concerned, Vingard and Pogacar. Neither of them was crying or complaining. I mean, yeah, they were frustrated. But neither said, oh, scandal, huh? That wasn't happening. Personally, I thought the jury should have considered taking away the points from that. 
that climb on that day with that situation, if the situation was grave enough that you're going to fine and exclude drivers and photographers and cameramen, then maybe you should consider neutralizing the points given because that, that, that sprint was clearly affected by that, what happened there. But outside of that, you know, what more can you really do? I really don't know. Yeah, no, it's a very nuanced view of a very complex subject, James. Thanks for that. What's upcoming for you in the next few days? Well, we got this uh, time trial. I think it's only like 20K and we go up the uh, the famous wall of a climb called the Cote de Mancy where Bernard Hinault, you know, won the world championships. And it's actually called Rue Bernard Hinault at the top. We've had this TT in the race a few, about five, six years ago, I believe, five years ago. It's going to be really interesting and it's going to, it's really hard for me to, to say who's got the advantage on this brutal two kilometer climb. You know, Pogacar's got the punch, but two kilometers at that, that grade, you have to sustain that. And, you know, I was reading in the keep, Pogacar says he thinks there's going to be a big time gap on this TT. At the same time, I could see it being, you know, two seconds. Thank you, James. Uh, we're going to take a short break and then I'll be back with James Witt to talk largely about pain and suffering. This episode of Ruler Conversations is brought to you by GCN+. The Tours de France are here. They're the greatest races in the world and you can see every unmissable moment on GCN+. I'm not actually going out for much of the tours this year, so I'm really looking forward to being able to watch every stage from start to finish ad-free. And for those days where life gets in the way of a cycling fan's real priorities, I can catch up at any time, because there are full replays of both races on demand. For the really busy, there is a selection of tailored highlight packages. You can go for long, short, or just the final kilometres. And as a cycling journalist, one of the most useful features is the ability to pause and rewind the live coverage. And this feature is great for trying to work out what's happened and why. You can also take the action with you if you're out and about. You can watch GCN Plus on any device. GCN Plus have brilliant commentators and co-commentators and an expert panel of knowledgeable ex-pros who will dissect and analyse the action, but also convey the fun and passion of the tours. And you can relive the best moments and biggest talking points on the weekly World of Cycling show. And this airs throughout the season. If that's not enough, you can get all the pre-race information you need with previews, route maps, profiles and start lists all available on the GCN app. With GCN Plus, the coverage continues all year round, with coverage of all the biggest races from the road, cyclocross, track and MTB seasons. You'll also have access to a huge collection of exclusive cycling films covering all aspects of the sport, from chats with legends through epic adventures to record-breaking challenges. There are already 150 titles, with more being added every week. A GCN subscription costs as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, and all our listeners can get 15% off an annual GCN Plus subscription. Head to gcn.eu slash ruler15 to subscribe and save 15%. This episode of Ruler Conversations is also brought to you by BMC. At Ruler, we've been listening to a few other great cycling pods and we want to share one of our favourites with you. The Rider's Digest, powered by BMC, takes you into the world of bikes with unparalleled access to everything. From getting inside the World Tour and Mountain Bike World Cups through to on-the-ground access at some of the biggest events. They also take deep dives into industry secrets and cutting-edge bike tech. 
Champion riders like Fabian Kanzlara, Cadell Evans and Greg Van Avermaet are familiar voices on the pod and they're mixed in with some next-level sound design to bring you right into the visceral world of cycling. If you want to experience a different perspective on the cycling world, then search for the Riders Digest wherever you get your podcasts or hit the link in our show notes. And now, back to Rouleau Conversations. I'm with James Witts, cycling journalist, sports science expert, occasional contributor to Rouleau, and now the author of Riding with the Rocketmen, One Man's Journey on the Shoulders of Cycling Giants, which is out now, published by Bloomsbury. We're at a very windy outdoors table at the Barley Mo pub in Bristol. Welcome to Rouleau Conversations, James. Thank you very much for your time on this, uh, yes, rather gusty afternoon. Riding with the Rocketmen tells the story of James's somewhat rash decision to participate in the 2022 Etape du Tour. Uh, the route was what some cycling journalists call the Alpine Circle of Death. <laughs> James is laughing at me here. It was. It went from Briançon up the Col du Lotaret, thence to the Col du Grébillet, onto the Col de la Croix de Fer, and finally up Alpe d'Huez. The book is packed full of useful advice, such as always wear your best boxer shorts to any physiological testing. Uh, James, your speciality is sports science, so you've tapped into your contact book for advice on how you, you could better survive the ordeal. You've outlined a few of the marginal gains used by World Tour pros, and you kind of applied them to well, the, the everyman who plays five-a-side football on a Monday night and likes craft beer. So first question is really, James, what on earth were you thinking? Uh, well, I guess a, a midlife crisis. I mean, I don't know what m- midlife is, 45. I mean, definitely def- 50, thank you very much. 50. You don't look a day over 49, Edward. Yeah, well, my background, as you say, is sort of cycling journalism, stroke sports science. That was my degree stroke English many years ago and I'd spent a lot of time with the teams and I really enjoy that aspect unearthing like how they these supermen are honed and molded into finely sort of honed athletes and then I had the stupid thought of like well okay I've done a couple books in the past the science of the Tour de France uh, followed by a football one which was similarly styled so I spent time with Man United living with Barcelona just seeing what goes on in the back rooms and I thought well, this is great but what about applying some of these ideas to my aging slowly beerified body just the year by year I think the ale would clung on a little bit the idea was twofold really I thought well let's aim for a big goal for me I've done quite a few endurance events but certainly not mountainous and historically to be honest more running and what I thought was run speed, which probably never was run speed, never actually transcended into cycling speed. So I felt I was very good at the theory, but not the application. So, yeah, the idea really was for me to spend time with my contacts, see what they do. And then that would be the start of each chapter, the first half. And then the second half would be me applying these techniques uh, yeah, to my body, whether it was altitude training and nutrition, etc., etc. Yeah. So, build a bit more of the foundation. What was your interest in sports science originally? Where did that come from? Because a degree in English and sports science, mm. I mean, at least you've ended up in the right job. Well, exactly. Where, 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 where did you first get the interest from? Where did it come from? Well, actually, I've, I mean, I, on a real basic level, I enjoyed reading <laughs> and I enjoyed sport. Uh, I do remember. In fact, probably near your way. I remember my work experience with the Express and Echo and I spent it 
uh, at Exeter City, actually. I should just say, we're both from Exeter, aren't we? Yes. So the Expression Echo is Exeter's it's local newspaper. Exeter's, uh, yeah, albeit probably dying local newspaper, unfortunately. So, yeah, I certainly had an interest there. This sport science side, again, I think I just... I remember seeing this programme on TV. I think it was the, not superstars, but again, it went into the background of like how swimmers were formed and all the physiology behind it. And I don't know, for some reason, I had a real interest in that. And it, football was my background. And as I say in the book, I had a trial for Watford. As it turns out, a lot of players in the Southwest, <laughs> youngsters had a, but I guess in a way it was sort of a failed sportsman-ish, but I guess that was the start of it. So that's, that's where I did the sport in English. Yeah. And then cycling. And then cycling, well, cycling, so, you know, like many people, I've always cycled, but professionally, I used to edit a triathlon magazine, sort of 220, I did that for a fair few years, but I was fascinated by, I guess, the professional side more. I mean, cycling's such a fascinating sport. On one level, it looks so simple, isn't it? And then obviously, you scratch a little deeper, it's like, well, hang on, that, that bloke came down halfway and he's winning. <laughs> how does that work so the complexities of that really appealed so that's when I went freelance on a professional basis about 10 years ago now so I pushed the cycling side and I pushed the sports science side because I saw a bit of a gap there which probably evolved around the same time marginal gains was hitting the and you know suddenly all these cyclists with power meters and taking blood tests and not injecting drugs obviously recreational riders would would never do that unless you read the book but <laughs> So yeah, it's sort of just building blocks really, but actually transfer it to myself. Again, I'm, I'm by no means a really good cyclist or a, a good cyclist, but I feel there is a gap in road cycling for people probably like myself who've got a real interest in it, but probably not that committed enough to like every Sunday go out for a five hour ride and have 10% body fat. So. I, was, I guess that every man-ish appeal I was trying to aim for. So what was your aim in riding the Etapto Tour? My aim, let's be honest, it was completion. Was I mean, time-wise, I was hoping really for around 10 hours, just under. As you said, the course was, it was about 100 miles, 170k, but 5,000 metres of climbing now. Obviously, the specimen that sits in front of you now, Ed, is it's no Quintana. You know, I'm what, 6'2", six, 6'3". Six, now I'm probably back to about 14, getting towards 14 and a half stone. And that was probably my starting point. So I didn't have concerns over the distance, but the mountains were like, no, that's going to be hard work. So I thought, well, that's the real challenge. And the heat. And let's be honest, from a drama side, we're trying to appeal, having the goal event as a, a stage of the Tour de France, is quite a big hit rather than maybe a hill climbing event up north. No disrespect to a hill climbing event up north. So what did your training consist of? Well, uh, I had a six month plan. This was via Training Peaks and a very nice chap called Phil Mosley, cycling coach, but does triathlon as well. So Phil set me up on a plan. Most of it, I had a Watt bike, so it was very much power based and a lot of it was indoors. As I say in the book, unfortunately, I'd had a bike fit right at the start of the process with Phil Burt. I'm sure a lot of your readers will be aware of Phil, who used to work with Team Sky and now has got a clinic up at Manchester. He 
measured me, got me in my optimum position, a comfort position, let's be honest, rather than too aerodynamic a position. And then I had four bikes stolen about the week after. So that set me back for a couple months. So it was very what bike heavy for the first six weeks. But I spent a lot of time what bike, but then it was the traditional, probably again, as listeners would probably follow themselves, a long ride, increasing long ride on a Sunday usually. Three weeks increasing volume, one week rest, so reel it back slightly. And then from week five, for example, you roughly take off from week three and just build it up over 24 weeks, I think. So that was the basics of the training plan. But the, the second strand to it was, although I was aiming for the attack, I wanted again, just to take it a step further, which I thought would be more of interest, at least to me. So I have a real diluted pro calendar. So I wanted to do a cyclocross, a la Pidcock, et cetera, time trial and a Northern European sort of cobbled classic. So cyclocross event, yeah, Flanders Sportif and a time trial in Dursley, Gloucestershire. <laughs> so it was all sort of thrown in. And one of the challenges, obviously, and it's a challenge for all of us who do a bit of sport on the side around a full time job, maybe a family as well and other commitments in life. You know, having a training program around that is quite hard to build in. So what did your normal week look like? Well, it wasn't too bad because actually uh, I'd said to Phil at the start, I didn't want as much as I could. I didn't want it to completely dominate. Like you said, you know, we've got two children, albeit a bit older now, but they were both living with us at the time. We were moving house. My wife had been diagnosed with long COVID. So there was quite a lot thrown into the, the mix. So I didn't really want to do more than a peak over like 10, maybe 12 hours a week. So I only, I had a long run ride on a Sunday and then it was probably three rides in the week of working at different zones, but not really much more than an hour, hour and a half. It would vary. It might be a maintenance effort, 40 minutes, sub threshold, just above threshold. So in the week was fine, but then I was adamant and my background was football and I loved playing five-a-side football on a Monday night and unless I really had to I didn't want to give that up because you know I still think I'm Brian Robson but sadly for our younger listeners Brian Robson was a famous footballer in the in the 1980s he was and is God but yeah so I, I didn't want to give that up on a Monday night and actually I also thought it's really tiring it's 70 minutes really a interval session you know I know you run as well so it was a real like so that was in a way key to it as well so it's probably four bikes a week football and I was commuting at times as well but it was manageable I wasn't waking up every morning thinking I can't do my job today so a lot of the book is also a result of your research and work and interviews around the world tour and professional cyclists you talk a lot about the pros and explain why they're so good and Tade Pogacar I've learned has great glycolytic capacity so it's easy for you to say it's very very difficult to say it's quite difficult to understand as well so did this journey you've been on kind of underline what the difference is between the rest of us and the world tour pros yes yeah I think I mean that was with um, if I can pronounce his name correctly an ego uh, Sam Milan who He's been in cycling for years and years, and 
He coaches Agacha also. He does a lot of research with mitochondria and cancer. And he really knows his stuff. So, it, I mean, yeah, in that case, in short, he's just got incredible capacity to recover and also incredible capacity to race fast while using fats rather than carbs. So carbs are limited in the body compared to even the thinnest rider has got a hell of a lot of calories stored in fat. That seems to be his sort of natural advantage. But yeah, it just hammered home. I think that support side, and you know, you've been in the sport a long time, just that monitoring, which they've got as an aside, I think they've got to be careful with because it's probably quite oppressive at times. Interestingly, in, um, interviewed Trek Segafredo's sports psychologist, Elisabetta Borgio, who was saying they're very mindful of overloading, I guess, para analysis by paralysis of just too much and too much pressure. But yeah, they are so monitored, you know, and interestingly, I don't know if you've heard of like performance plates, so really measuring portion size, which on one hand you think, well, wow, that seems dangerous in a way. But actually, some of the nutrition was saying, well, the riders quite like that because I think what seems to make these riders so good or one of the strands is just pure efficiency. That's a decision they don't have to make. And I think, it, who is it? It was um, Owen Blandy, maybe, the EF nutritionist, was saying that, yeah, some of the, the riders, he, he thinks they're so efficient, just everything's the same. So it might be, yeah, I'll have a two egg omelette. Or have a, they won't change at all. They'll be the last one down to the foyer before they go the transfer to the start. And it's sort of just standard stuff. But yeah, they're just different beasts. Yeah. <laughs> now, the things though, you mentioned that the measuring, the measuring of everything. And obviously the World Tour professionals have got the support and the time to measure everything. And it's in their benefit. Marginal gains has become such a cliche, but it's a cliche because it's true. And the more you measure and the more you know, the more knowledge you have. And you talked about a few different things you can do to measure. You wore a, a glucose monitor, oh, yes, had your yeah. blood tested. And yeah. you, know, you don't have to do these things, do you? But at yeah. the same time, if you have access to it and you can do it and you feel it be beneficial, yeah. um, then you can learn a lot from measuring all these different things. Yeah, and I, I think now it's reached a stage where the generation coming through, that that's sort of the norm. You know, I think for one of the, that that's more indigenous now that they've just grown up with all of these metrics. Whereas obviously maybe the older riders probably took a bit of convincing, as you know, it, it does with older folk like <laughs> new ideas. But yeah, I think it's just it's such fine margins. Although interestingly, after after it all, I I think one of the biggest things that jumped out is one of the most hardest things to measure is just the mind and that motivation and the need to succeed which is questionnaires and bits and pieces but I think it's still very hard to measure that aspect of how how hard do you want it or how hard do you need it? which arguably you know obviously Lance Armstrong was probably a bit naughty at times <laughs> but <laughs> well probably he's doing some heavy lift, lifting there James it's right you, 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 you can you know be clear about it okay yes he was uh, yes a, a cheating devil but you know, he clearly had a will to succeed that transcended any, well, not maybe transcended, but you couldn't buy that in a chemist. You know, he obviously had a slightly psychopathic will to succeed, but, and cross the line, but obviously to be at that level, you've got to have a, a real either need to achieve or need to avoid failure. But 
I mean, it wouldn't be a cycling book without a, a section on doping, I guess. Stories like Lance Armstrong's and the DCMS report into Richard Free, Dr. Richard Freeman, Team Sky, they're all a matter of public record. And you've spoken to a few experts who, you know, all are pretty unanimous in saying that cycling has considerably cleaned up its actors. You know, no one would be naive enough to say that cycling is a clean sport 100%, but considerably cleaner than it was even, even 10 or 12 years ago. But you also spoke to Joe Papp, a former... Um, former professional cyclist and somebody who actually dealt in performance enhancing drugs as well. He said that 80% of his clients were not professional cyclists, but kind of competitive amateur cyclists. And yeah. that, we don't, I don't mean by that the, the guys who are just under the world tour. It's, it's people like A-type personalities who do it as yeah. a, a recreational pursuit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, but not, yeah, I'm not casting aspersions at you here, by the way, James. Well, if, I mean, if I was on the med, they clearly didn't work, unfortunately. But yeah, and that was fascinating because I spoke to Joe who's, you know, he's almost evangelical, I think, these days of what happened. And I mean, Joe, he, he sent me so much material. I had like prescriptions of like mid 2000s to doctors in the I was like, I mean, maybe understandably Bloomsbury didn't want to publish them, but yeah, he was saying such a high percentage were, like you said, probably that A type personality, you know, front of the pack at the Grand Fondos and sportives. Obviously it's not ideal to dope. I get it as a professional rider, especially in an era where you are either in a team or or not, and your livelihood depends on it, and that's been your dream since you were at school. You know, I don't think you can particularly just demonise that quite human. You know, yeah, I guess there's a cultural pressure, and you yeah. know, it's out of people. It becomes almost not not a personal decision. You know, it obviously is a personal decision, but you can understand the context and the nuance of it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you could see there's a tangible reward, I guess, but. For recreational, I said, well, there's, you might win 50 quid and a bottle of energy drink or something. So I was like, well, what was the driver there? But Joe was saying that actually, arguably, a, a greater motivator beyond money is the ego and, and pride. And I guess if your, you know, drive is to succeed, I also think there's probably an element of if you're that dedicated to it, there might be that fascination with, well, how much quicker will that make me? Clearly, I'm not condoning uh, you know, <laughs> the use of... Um, but there was a, a study I think I'd mentioned in the book about people's take on supplements and there seemed to be a bit of a link there. For them, it didn't seem much of a jump between taking a lot of supplements <laughs> and vitamins and then something that was on the wilder list. So... You opted against performance-enhancing drugs, but what are the most beneficial strategies and um, the easy wins, really, for improving? So if anyone who's listening to this fancies having a crack at the Attapter Tour, a bit late for this year, it's happening in about a month's time, but yeah. in the future, you know, you've got six months to train. What are the really easy wins and the most beneficial things you can do Because when you don't need the absolute minute marginal gains yeah. such as measuring glucose? Well, I'd, I'd say... This sounds an obvious one, but I think it, it's all got to start from the motivation for that challenge. Now, I know on like the morning of the attack, and as I go into probably a bit too much detail at times, I wasn't very well overnight before the race. And actually, if, I, if it wasn't for the book, I don't think I would have even raced. But I was like, 
hmm, there's, there's not a great end and Bloomsbury might not, <laughs> not be overly happy if the end point is, yeah, and I just retired at the hotel. But so I think that, that motivation to whatever the challenge is has clearly got to be there from the start. And then I guess that is the working back aspect. For me, that training plan, like I said, I've done a lot of events in the past, yeah, yeah. running, triathlon, cycling, but level cycling, but not particularly too regimented a training plan. Having that training plan, I felt really helped. It made me feel more accountable. And it also helped that, I mean, we're here outside this rather nice pub now, Ed, having a, a nice pint of Bristol Brewery's finest. But the bit that really helped when I, I lost probably about 5k by the start line, which didn't sound a lot like I said, but I feel anything would have helped. But I had two spells where I just cut alcohol completely. So it was about nine weeks out of the 24. That was ironically only, well, not ironically, the only times I really noticed the loss of weight. But I think having the training plan, doing that, it all sort of building blocks to that accountability. Bike fit, I mentioned that quite a bit in the writings I've done before, but I think that does really help because it doesn't take a lot for you to be slightly off and your knees not aligned and injury to strike and get people on board, really. Like my wife was, I mean, to be fair, she was struggling with long COVID, <laughs> but she was supportive from, uh, from the sofa. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I think the biggest one is you've got to be motivated enough to to do it and then also take it. Well, I guess that was part of the joy of the book, really, was trying to learn from the pros. So if, you, if you're racing in the heat, you know, do a bit of heat acclimation work, sort of take it seriously, and, but don't let it kill your life, I guess. You don't want it to become not fun if you can avoid it. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it's meant to be fun, isn't it? Even though... You know, on the face of it, riding 5,000 vertical metres on a very hot day when your training context is the West Country of England, which is neither particularly mountainous nor particularly hot. Yeah. So you know, that makes training for that specific effort quite hard, but at the same time, it does have to be fun, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you've got to cling on to that. And another thing I would say is, in a way, I probably enjoyed when did the Flanders Sportif more than the Etap? Again, for anyone who will enjoy the joy that is that book, <laughs> the Etap, I did it solo, went on my own, wasn't overly well, but the logistics of it all being a point to point, I'd signed up too late, uh, or there was a shuttle bus to take you from the end point on the Saturday back to the start line. That was full, so I had to work out a bus route and my French is poor at best. So Flanders I did with some mates and actually I would recommend that. I felt a lot more stressed having a tap. Part of that is I didn't have anyone to particularly vent any disorganized chaos that I managed to throw on the situation. Yeah. And, and the Flanders Sportif, you've got a choice of distances and yeah. obviously it's tough because you're riding quite a long way, probably in chilly weather and there are many hills. They aren't particularly big ones, but no. they do come thick and fast. Yeah. Uh, but it's a great community event as well. So yeah. easy. And you did it with your friends. Well, I did it with friends. I think also we, we drove over. So, you know, we went from Folkestone and just put the bikes on the roof. It is a slightly different proposition. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's not death defying and all that, but just people know what it's like with bike boxes and sort of, you know, what you're going to find. It's, it's quite funny. We landed at Lyon Airport and I going through these lads picking up their bikes and uh, 
they opened them immediately, which I thought were fair play because I don't think I can face that. I need to just get to where I'm going, then I'll worry about that. And this bloke was like, oh, they, my bike's ruined and all this. And they said, I paid for this bike box. And they were like, just, you know, a bounce, I think they call it, saying, yeah, you pay for the bike box, but you haven't actually clamped your, bike, your biking. But with your mates is a good one, I think. Yeah. So don't want to give away the dramatic conclusion. And I mean, I'll, I'll say there were moments which matched the existential despair I felt when I was reading Cormac McCarthy's <laughs> The Road. But how did the day go, James, in your opinion? I mean, it was long. It was long. I finished. I didn't get swept up by the broom wagon. But, I, yeah, basically I had, let's say, some stomach issues overnight. So I won't get into too much detail. You know, it's, it's before nine o'clock. But I felt rough. But I thought, well, I've got to go for it. Going at the Galibier, that was okay because it was eight o'clock in the morning, a bit cooler. And the gradient, what, five, five and a half percent average or something. It was okay. Going down that, descent and I think Andy Hampston who I interviewed before it said probably one of the best descents he's ever done and obviously Tom Pidcock showed off down there a few days later <laughs> but <laughs> but then you hit the feed zone and someone's coming up then and this was just for the scent of the Quad Affair and that was a different proposition and I think I put in the book it was like it felt like a, a suffering of silence just the joviality had disappeared and then I just started to feel because I was having some stomach issues, rougher and rougher. That's where my long day in and out of the saddle <laughs> began. Yeah. And you, you talked about, a, a, is it a, a kind of psychological arc mm. you go through in, that it's not just you who's experienced this, There's, you know, this, this is a thing, you talk about that, that arc of psychology. What, tell us a bit about. Yeah, well, it's, I, I mean, I got that from interviewing Mark Beaumont a couple of times, who's the round the world record how did he ride around the world I think in 79 days and doing two, riding 240 miles a day and I think he was doing four hours on certain amount of time off four hours on but he said whether it was that or even like a you know say 40 50 miles sportif there's this psychological arc of you start well and positive as the finish line gets hones into view you get that boost there's that no man's land in the middle where you're a reasonable way from the start but the the finish line still very far in the distance. You just have too much time to think about, you know, what lies ahead. And that's where the negative thoughts can seep in. And that's where I, I interviewed a chap called No Brick. He's a great name, lovely chap. He's a sports psychologist and reader at, I think it's Ulster University. And he was great because he was like, I was feeling quite nervous by then. It was one or two weeks before. Yeah, he's like Paul McKenna. He really, you know, even like techniques like chunking, which I'm sure you, a lot of your readers and listeners will be aware of, are just breaking it down, but just flipping everything of building on the experience, the stuff you've done. I spent time in Andorra Vineos at Altitude Camp, and that threw me a bit when I was speaking to Adrian Lopez, the trainer, and saying, well, this, we're going to have a mountain following Ben Tuller, and it's 30 kilometers. And he said, what mountains are like this in... Europe and he said well the one that jumps out is a Galibia I was like oh, bugger that's that's what I, I'm facing so that threw me at the time because like you said I'm used to going up Cheddar Gorge and but um, he said well no that's a positive experience you're feeling that now I mean admittedly a lot of these psychological techniques disappeared slightly the time I got to Oak Duez because that was um, I, I interviewed one lad and he said by the time you get to Oak Duez you're not going to want to be on the bike 
anymore. And um, he was absolutely right. And to be fair, I, I wasn't on the bike that much by then. It was a lot of on-off push, ride, push. Yeah. So apart from getting ill the night before, in terms of your preparation, what do you do differently next time? Presuming you're going to do this again, maybe I'm... Absolutely. No, it's, it darts all the way now, I think. I think in all honesty, so starting like the training program was great, but actually I think I was possibly a bit too tied with it at times. So I think I could have probably made it a bit more fun by doing my own training camps with my mates, you know, going off to the Breckens, which is just over, I live near Bristol now, so it's just over the Seven Bridge. So I think I could have added that variety. I probably needed to do more hills, to be honest. What I was following was probably more time and distance base rather than altitude based. And I've, I've put that in the book. I think the, I'm sounding like George Best. The, like I said, the cutting the drinking for nine weeks did lose a bit of weight. So I think if the go was big enough to have a real, you know, there's some nice non-alcoholic beers out there now albeit they're sort of calorific. Yeah. And lastly, you, you claim to be Devonian, but you refer to putting the cream on the jam on page 59, James. Explain. <laughs> Did I? That was, uh, that was, I mean, we used to go to St. Ives all the time on holiday, so that's probably where it, where it came from. <laughs> to explain to our listeners who are not from Devon and Cornwall that there's a, a large, an ongoing debate about which goes first on the scone, the clotted cream or the jam. But James, really enjoyed reading the book. It made me laugh a lot. I was laughing with you, not at you, I should say. <laughs> and really enjoyed it. Learned a lot from it in terms of world top professionals and, and my day job, but also just enjoyed the humanity and just going on that journey with you. So Thank you for that. Riding with Rocketman by James Witt is available in all good bookshops now. Please support independent booksellers if you can. James, thank you very much for coming on Ruler Conversations. Thank you, Ed. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to Ruler Conversations. Ruler Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Ruler magazine. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Ruler and on Instagram at Ruler magazine or visit our website at ruler.cc. This episode was produced by Amber Miller of Content is Queen. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.